this is Sari Martin Concepcion with a special treat for your podcast feed today. This week and next week, we have two special bonus episodes of the series with a guest host, Blueprint 1543's first intern, Emma Baker. Emma's a senior at George Fox University in Oregon with years of ministry experience under her belt already. Her internship period came to a close recently, and for her, it really helped clarify a vocational call somewhere between the church and professional counseling services for the broader culture, which is why the conversation you'll hear today is so special. As part of her internship program, I asked Emma if she'd like to pick a couple people in our network to interview for the show. She chose Dave Eckert and Preston Hill. Today, you'll hear from Dave Eckert, who directs a program called Intersect, which is a division of Access Services. He's trying to create more balance and trust between the mental health care that the church can provide and the expertise of professional social workers and therapists. It's an exciting program that checks a lot of boxes for Emma. And if you want to hear a little more about Dave Eckert, he is also featured in a video that we produced, which you can find at psychforministry.com, which is linked in the show notes. Enjoy the show. Hi, uh, this is Emma Baker from Blueprint 1543, and today I have with me Dave Eckert. Hey, Dave. Hi, Emma. Thanks for having me today. I'm glad to see you again. Would you start by telling us a little bit about your current role and kind of how you evolved to get there? Sure. So I work at Access Services as your director of the Intersect Initiative, and I'm also a pastor at Grace Community Church, both in the greater Philadelphia area. And so in that role, I've basically been walking in two worlds for a lot of, of my adult life, the world of the adult mental health system, where I've been working in the field of mobile psychiatric rehabilitation, and the world of the church, where, as I said, I've been a leader. And so having walked in those worlds for quite some time, I noticed that each of those worlds could benefit from the insights that the other had to offer. And so out of that, out of the need to have a mental health field that could better navigate the spiritual dimension of people and churches that could better walk with people around their mental health struggles, we started Intersect, which is an initiative that supports people at the intersection of faith and mental health. And we do that through consultation and training to both of those worlds, and then fostering collaboration between faith communities and uh, human service organizations. When did your organization start? Access Services, which is the broader organization I'm a part of, started in 1976. Intersect, the initiative that I direct, started in 2017. Okay, excellent. So it's relatively new. Did you, so you worked at a church before and then kind of, what was your journey from, did you go to school for therapy first or was that after some pastoral care stuff? What how did those roads specifically collide for you? In undergrad, I was a double major. I majored in both social work 
in biblical studies. And so during that time, I always had classes and influences that caused me to care about both of those things. And coming out of undergrad, I thought that I would want to be a chaplain because it felt like chaplains were those people that had the best chance of being in those two worlds, you know, interpersonal, up-close, holistic ministry, and yet theologically grounded and spiritually shaped. But when I had an internship at Access Services in my undergrad, so I'm one of the few that has worked in the same organization my entire adult life, when I started that internship, I just loved being out in the community doing social work. And then during that time, I also got involved in a church and I started to get my master's in divinity. And it's the same church that I'm still a part of. That church over time ordained me and then asked me to come on staff. And so it started out as an education that helped me see the value of both of those spaces just kind of grew together over time so that I was bivocational for much of my adult life. That's really cool. I think that's somewhat rare. There are a lot of people who do one or the other, and then they end up doing both. But yeah, it's... Yeah, I, I feel like God both prepared me for doors that would open up eventually, and God was good at answering my prayers and that I was saying, God, like the tradition I grew up in was one in which the culmination of ministry was preaching. And mm-hmm. I'm on a preaching team. Like I preach, that's part of what I do in my role as a church in the church. But I always thought that I want to do something different besides preaching. Preaching wasn't the thing that started me off with a passion for ministry. It was walking alongside people. It was seeing needs that people had in different sorts of situations that caused me to want to put that into practice in that way. But I didn't always see ministry models in the Mm -hmm. tradition I grew up in that prepared me for that. And so it wasn't as if I sought this intentionally knowing, oh, I want to do work like that person does work. I sensed a desire to have both of those lanes be a part of what I was doing, but I wasn't sure how it would happen. And God kindly put me in educational spaces and in occupational spaces that helped me to move towards what I'm doing now. Yeah. That's really excellent. At the Blueprint Conference, there was a lot of conversation around the struggle um, of integration. And we, the people who walk both of those roads, who walk among psychologists and sociologists and social workers and community people, as well as pastors, see so much benefit to a holistic view of a human life, and that including spirituality as well as mental health and psychiatric care or whatever someone might need. But those fields of study and the metrics and even just the departments on different college campuses aren't as good at that communication because they have to pursue excellence at their own level and in their own language. And 
I'm I'm also a double major, so I kind of get the walking mm-hmm. back and forth between psychology and theology and ministry. And I was talking to one of my professors um, in the theology department and telling him that it just felt like I spent all of my time trying to say the same thing in two different languages and in two different formats. So I'm writing two different papers about the same thing that I'm experiencing or seeing in the world, but I have to use APA for one and MLA for the other. And has that been kind of part of your experience, not just in the academic world, but in kind of communicating and becoming a translator of sorts in your community? Definitely. Very much so, it's become a best practice, really, a core skill for people in Intersect, because we're constantly interacting with people from different frameworks, from different systems. And so how we talk about faith and mental health to a faith community, we're going to have to use certain language that's going to be different from how we talk about faith and mental health when we talk to mental health practitioners. And the fact that we are in both worlds gives us credibility in both of those spaces and gives us experiences that allow us to use language that's going to appeal and meet people where they're at. And so like you, very much so, we are in situations where I'm going, I had a similar conversation about this very topic, but I'm needing to enter in through another door. I'm having to use other language in order to make this work. And I think there's theological examples of that. When you look at Acts 17 and Paul in the Areopagus, he's speaking differently than he speaks when he's in a Jewish synagogue. So even within my own Christian faith, in scriptures, I see examples of having to be incarnational and having to be a translator in different situations. And not only that, but there's resources within social work for meeting people where they are and being culturally competent. So there are models for thinking about this that, while distinct, overlap in a variety of ways. Yeah, I think there might be a misconception sometimes that you're losing authenticity or you're losing the the bold proclamation of your faith when using different terms or entering intellectually humbly into a space kind of with some openness to using different language and respecting kind of the way that they work. But there there is some, I think, some incarnational wisdom that is adaptation. And Paul talks about being, I was the Roman to the Romans and Mm -hmm. to the Jews, I was the best of Jews, not in a way that you're trying to always appeal to every crowd, but in order to speak different languages, you have to learn them and you have to learn their grammar. And And I've appreciated, you you talked about the boldness issue and I would agree with that. There's people who wonder, do you lose both proclamation by being in these spaces that require you to be respectful of people from different backgrounds and form right. part of your own work. You know, that the best practices of your particular field would say you need to be this way. But right. I appreciate people who talk about boldness more from a place of clarity than 
from a place of bombacity or make boldness something that just is something that is done by people with big personalities. I think you can be very clear about what you think and the perspective that you hold and distinguish it from other perspectives in a way that's respectful. You know, we have a multi-faith coalition that's a part of Intersect. And one of the principles that we have is that respect is different than agreement. Yeah, Being respectful does not mean you have to agree. There's mm-hmm. no way you could agree on all the sorts of things that people of faith, let alone people who are not of faith, come together around and, and discuss. That doesn't mean yeah. you, you can't be respectful, though. Right. And that keeps us from having to jump to the other side, which is relativism. There's intense tribalism where my tradition needs to show up in a way that conflicts or that needs to conquer yours in some way. Like one of us has to win. And then there's the other, which is no one is right. I don't really know what I think. You you could think something that could change the and and there's just no grounding there. I really love the multi-faith coalition because it offers this other space which is really difficult to find I think in the modern sphere where especially with kind of algorithmic thinking of the internet becoming how we communicate interpersonally the more the more polarized you are the easier it is to become popular in your own sphere, but then you lose the value of relationships. And this is a live conversation right now that I'm a part of. I actually just wrote up a little bit of it in our Intersect newsletter about a relationship I have with a man named Aziz in our multi-faith coalition. He's a Muslim. And just about the fact that Aziz and I really appreciate one another but we disagree in a variety of ways. Not only the obvious disagreement, which would be theological disagreement, but even how we go about dialogue in interfaith spaces. For example, Aziz is prone to say, as many are, conversation without conversion. Mm-hmm. I prefer to say, it's one of the principles of our multi-faith coalition, Sharing without imposition. Because for me, this is, I'll name it, my own Christian tradition. For me, conversion isn't a dirty word. It's mm-hmm. changing one's mind when one comes upon and discovers something true, good, and beautiful. And mm-hmm. so I'm okay with changing one's mind and then even the desire to see others' minds change towards something you see as true, good, and beautiful. What I don't think is something that even would come out of the Christian faith is imposition, or it shouldn't come out, which is imposition. And if you don't want to be part of a conversation in which um, we're talking about our disagreement, then I need to pull back from that. I'm not going to hear to have a conversation you don't want. And so I appreciate that one of the people in our coalition said, when you do this work in a multi-faith coalition, if you're not coming out of it just a tad uncomfortable, then you're probably not doing it right because you're probably (laughs) not really 
honestly addressing the sorts of issues that are there that are worth working through. Yeah, there's a lot of fear that seems to be present in conversion-oriented conversations where I don't think that Jesus really spoke from that place. He didn't seem to be really afraid for the people who were marginalized or who were suffering. It was about this good thing mm. that that was on the precipice. It was and even when he was talking in sort of a warning tone towards Pharisees or towards teachers of the law, it was a sort of you're gonna miss out. Mm. It wasn't this sort of you're gonna be punished, but it's, you're not able to see the goodness that comes from this possible inclusion, which includes people you maybe didn't think that you could sit at a table with. And so I think that love keeps us uncomfortable in a way that makes new relationships possible. Yeah. And I also think, and I'm recognizing here that I'm, you know, using terminology from certain st- theological stream, but this idea of common grace, this idea that actually God gives good things to people in his world, even those who don't acknowledge him, means that even if I do believe I have come upon the revelation of God himself through Jesus, that doesn't mean I can't learn things from people yeah. who disagree with me. And so when I make a case for conversion, What I don't want to portray is that there's nothing for me to learn in this. And that dialogue is just about getting you to think exactly like me. In fact, there are times where, you know, we've talked in our own church about when we've talked to people who disagree with us about faith, it often has caused us to grow in our faith because we've had to go deeper into it to say, I've never heard that objection before. Why do I believe what I believe? Huh, I have to think through this more. And so engaging in that sort of dialogue, it's not just a good because we believe we have the good news, the gospel. It's good because we have things to learn. And God loves humility. And therefore, to the extent that I can be a humble learner through engaging with people who think in very different ways, I think that can be a wise thing to do. How how would you advise pastors who, because that's kind of our, our intended audience for, for today, is thinking about, are there pastors in the world um, who are looking for ways to meet the needs of their, meet the needs of their community that could be made more possible by partnering with secular organizations or with social work organizations and what needs to what's going to equip them to do that what tools what i'm asking you what has helped you i've loved the book holy envy by barbara brown taylor she talks a lot about multi-faith interactions and about learning to love the faith of our neighbor without having to adopt it necessarily or adopt their religion and and to continue to be inspired to love Jesus more through and and because of differing views around you what books or things keep you grounded and also keep you 
pushing to be more humble and to own that love that is really uncomfortable? I think it's valuable to have a wide variety of conversation partners when you're doing this. Maybe one way to put it is people to your right and to your left because Mm -hmm. they keep you honest. And when you're going in one direction with the dialogue, I want to know from people on my left, am I willing to go into those sorts of spaces that Jesus went into where people were concerned? What are you doing hanging out with those people? And I want to hear from people on my right to say, am I staying faithful and grounded in the faith, the apostolic deposit, the faith that was handed down by the apostles as I go into those spaces with people who are very different? So I think having a variety of conversation partners, even if you end up not agreeing with all of them, can be helpful in just keeping you honest and grounded while still engaged. When it comes to things that could be helpful to pastors, one of the things I hear pastors say a lot is that they don't make referrals to social service organizations because they don't know who they can trust. Because they're concerned that if they make a referral of someone in their congregation, that the mental health provider may not respect the face of that congregant. And so better not to make the referral. And I think that's where one of the things we try to do in Intersect is be conversation partners to pastors so that a pastor could call and they know, okay, here's someone who respects my faith, shares my faith even, but who also knows the resources that are out there in the community and can therefore let me know, okay, here's referrals you might want to consider making. These are groups you can trust. And if along the way, there's something that concerns you, a conversation where you feel like the faith of the person you referred is being challenged in an inappropriate way, we'll advocate for you in that way. And so I would encourage pastors to find who are people in my congregation who may be mental health professionals, and I haven't even considered reaching out to them to be a resource for me. Who are other people in my community that I've met who are Christians working in the fields that we're just talking about in psychology and social work, who I could reach out to be a conversation partner and a connector for me. I think those, we could keep talking about this, but those are just a couple of things that I think could be helpful to pastors who are trying to dip their toe into this space, but have some concerns about doing so. Absolutely. Yeah. What have you, what have been the biggest challenges in that area? For you, for communicating, I mean, it It seems like there's a lot. We've identified fear as the kind of large shadow that can kind of motivate people to want to stick to their group and not to stray from it. But what challenges outside of that kind of vague fear? Are there like logistical things that are really difficult? What do... Are there challenges with communicating specifically with those counselors? We've talked a little bit about the sometimes fear that people outside of the church community have that the church will not care for people properly. 
or have a a trauma-informed approach. I have felt that in my own world, trying to recommend people that I love to join a congregation in a space and not really feeling sure if that space would care for them well. And so I'd feel hesitant to say like, yeah, you should definitely go to church when there were times in my world where that wasn't actually super helpful for me. And I had to find my way back through different spaces. So I'm a part of an incredible congregation now and have found that's been a huge need is a community. And that's what we've talked about. Congregations being able to offer is saying to those secular psychologists or or therapists, like this community aspect is something that an individualistic clinical model can't offer. But we do have that option within our churches. And that's a huge wealth, especially in a world that is increasingly more isolated and lonely post-pandemic. And yeah, how do we navigate that conversation as well? How have you navigated that? Yeah, there's definitely a lot of fear to go around. And that's not to put people down because I've got my own fears. One of them is, depending on where you're at on the continuum, you could be in a church. And one of the fears in this whole conversation is, are you taking seriously scripture? Or are you asking me to adopt an alien worldview, a secular psychological worldview, And is that compromising the sufficiency of God's word for being able to face the challenges that the people in my church are facing? So oftentimes Mm -hmm. when we're going and speaking with a church or with leaders, we have to go deeper into scripture. We put together a training on a biblical view of mental illness because we just recognized for some people they wanted to grapple and they needed to grapple with this topic through the lens of scripture before they could even talk about what are some of the practical things that might be helpful to people in their church. And Mm. so that's certainly one of the fears that exists for people. And then Mm. on the other part of the intersection, there's fears from people who are in the social services that they will not know how to adequately deal with spiritual things or faith issues. I remember once a clinician calling me up and saying, Dave, every time somebody mentions God or faith, can I just call you? Because I'm an atheist. Mm -hmm. And so they, and a lot of people who don't assess spiritual needs within the mental health field, tell me they don't do so because they feel inadequate. So they Mm -hmm. fear not being able to adequately go about this conversation because their lack of spiritual insight or Mm -hmm. religious education. And so for people in that space, we, you know, we have a training on spiritual tools and resources for practitioners where we're just trying to say in the same way that you would work with other people of different backgrounds to which you know very little, you know, Mm -hmm. and you would want to have cultural competence and build that. How can you build cultural competence for people of faith? And so there was a lot in your question. I want to make sure if we want to go deeper into another part of it that we do, but those are just a couple of fears that often come up in our work and intersect as we're trying to engage people in both of those spaces to do the work. There's a reticence because of the things they do know and the things they don't know. Yeah, that is an excellent way to 
again, come back to our theme of why integration can be so valuable because we're not, no community in isolation will be perfect at the biopsychosocial spiritual model. And I, I come to think about how the church has come alongside medical communities and has sort of integrated. We talked about chaplaincy just a little bit and how hospitals know that there are spiritual elements that doctors and nurses are not equipped to mm. handle. So they hire chaplains to come and to serve alongside because we know that people are complex. And the church doesn't say, the church has, a lot of churches have come to an understanding of medicine that is, we are here to walk alongside the surgeons because the Bible doesn't give us in like the specific modern medication understanding of the body. And I think that psychology is becoming more like that where I wouldn't go see, I would ask a pastor to pray for my leg if I broke it, but I would go see a doctor and continue to consult my pastor on my life and kind of expect to look at me as a whole person. But then there's that psychological factor where I grew up in the church expecting the church to fix all of my psychological problems and then realizing that, okay, there, there are some more complex things that I might need to outsource and I can still remain completely rooted in my faith tradition while seeking out that extra speciality or knowledge without having to abandon. And so there's this need for people who are needing psychological help, therapy, or any kind of thing like that, where it's not that they've abandoned the church or decided that they don't need it anymore, but there is a more specific and more like scientific way of approaching that, where the need for that holistic model of healing is still necessary. We still need our communities to lean on. We still need pastors, um, at least I still do, to reference for, is this in line with what I believe? And am I still grounded in those other things? I think well, we, that talked that, about the, we talked about the translation work earlier. And in a way, yeah. both of these worlds that we've been discussing provide signposts in their own resources for why the other is needed. For example, yeah. in the mental health field, it's clear that People need community, but it's also clear in which even the best social service has limits on how well it can do in providing community. Many times, as a director of a mobile psych rehab program, we would provide a quality service. The person would come to the point of discharge, and we'd realize we were basically discharging them to nothing. Mm -hmm. We had become some of their best friends, and they didn't want to leave our service, not because they needed more support from us, but because they didn't have community. And we know that they need community, just like we all do. Well, while faith communities aren't the only expression of community, they are one of the major expressions of concrete community that we have. Right. Also, mental health professionals recognize people need meaning and purpose. Well, one of the things in the DNA of the church is you know, meaning given to us by God, uh, 
an eternal purpose that we have uh, at its best. But in similar ways, I think the church provides in its own scriptures spaces and permission to go outside of itself for support. One just small example I would give is First Timothy, when Paul tells Timothy to take a little bit of wine for his stomach. Why doesn't he just tell Timothy to pray? Well, he probably yeah. did tell Timothy to pray. But he also told Timothy that because wine had medicinal value, it was as, as it was understood at the time, you might want to do that too, because you're a physical creature made mm-hmm. by God. You know, Jesus came not just proclaiming the kingdom, but also healing diseases and sicknesses. So it's not as if First Timothy 5 or the, the Gospel of Matthew tells us everything there is to know about the body or the brain, but it gives us to me permission to go outside of itself to a God-soaked world of full of common grace and people with wisdom that he's given them to be able to go deeper. I love the way that you've put that and the way that has really come together for you. What are what have been your just go-to resources for your own mental health, for your own um, spiritual wellness? And what are things that you recommend when people are trying to find a community? I do find that for myself, my own mental and spiritual health. I've talked to a number of other people who have had the same experience. It feels like when we're dealing well, spiritually, and we're in rhythms that are healthy, we also tend to be dealing a bit better with our physical health and some of those rhythms. So I almost find that when I'm struggling in one, I'm just in my life struggling in a variety of ways. So for Mm -hmm. me, it's just you know, I, I was really influenced by the book by Dallas Willard, The Spirit of the Disciplines, that really yeah. talked about the importance of spiritual disciplines based on, among other things, Paul and First Timothy talking about spiritual exercise. And so being able to each morning be in scripture, be in prayer, and even journal about through confession, like looking at the last day, what was going on inside of me the previous day? What are some things I need to grow in? What are some things I need to confess? What's God doing in my life? As well as praying for others and really helpful practices. And the writings of people like Willard, a more recent book from a Willard quote, a book called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry by John Mark Comer has been helpful to me not in kind of obeying everything he writes in there, but more just remembering, wait a minute, why am I rushing? What's going on? What am I trying to, to prove? Yeah. What's going on in my soul if this is happening? Um, those have been really helpful resources for me. Also, the work of Richard Emmons, who writes about gratitude, has been a very important resource for me, I found is that the older I get, I often have decisions. Am I going to live in a space of gratitude or in a, a space of, you know, wishing I could hold on to the past or wishing this was different about my life or that? Or am I going to see all that God has done for me? So that's my answer to sort of what are some of the things that have been helpful to my own spiritual and mental health. In terms of what I would offer for people who are kind of thinking, how do I move towards community? 
this doesn't answer that whole question, but just one thing that I think is worth considering is doing the thing you least want and most need. I'll unpack that for a minute. I have talked to several people who live with depression who say, the last thing I wanted to do was to go to life group or to go to a church gathering. I just wanted to isolate and to be by myself. But when I went, I realized it's the thing I needed most. And a lot of us have had that experience. Like you didn't want to do anything. You wanted to stay home and binge watch Netflix. But when you went out and you were with people and experienced community as a relational being, by the end of the night, you're like, you know, that was good that I did that. And so for people who deal with that, I just think it's a helpful thing for people to be reminded of that experience that they've had, but that's easy to forget in the moment. Uh, yeah. To do that thing they least want, but will ultimately see they most need. Hmm. That is a really excellent piece of advice. And I think it applies to so many different aspects of life. I think of treating yourself as you would someone else and the mm -hmm. way that I would want things for myself, but I also would probably advise myself to take care of my basic needs and to assess what those actually are and figure out, all right, I don't want to eat, but I do know that my body needs these things relatively to keep going. And I know that exercise isn't what I desire at the moment, but going on a walk will give my brain those endorphins that are going to be helpful. Is it going to be super fun? Probably not. Will I actively feel like I hate it the whole time? Maybe. That's quite possible. But there is a little bit of Thankfully, our biology that doesn't really obey our mm. kind of, if you put like the id, the ego, and the superego, there's some of that doesn't really obey my superego because it's just, it's a little bit more animalistic than that sometimes. And so treating my body kindly, like you would a small child who really wants a lot of things, but in the end, when they sort of submit to the more biologically appropriate rhythms, it ends up being a lot better whether or not they have a lot of fun on the way there. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and that can be... No, that's a great way to put it. I think it was attributed to C.S. Lewis, this concept of what we often need isn't to learn something new, but to be reminded of what we already know. And a lot of these things, people have experienced that sort of sense of when I do X, I'm in a better place, but it's just mm -hmm. hard to remember that in the moment where you are just, your thinking is being overshadowed by how you feel. And so what I wouldn't want to do is to suggest in some way that we become great advice givers to people in their darkest moments, because, you know, yeah. we recognize Job's friends were at their best, not when they were giving advice, but when they were sitting down quiet for seven days. Yeah. But when we earn that right to be heard over time and when we can echo back to people, not our great wisdom, but things they've told us about what's been helpful to them, mm. I think that can have a power in it and help them move a little bit closer to community. Yeah. 
That reminds me of um, when life feels really impossible. I often turn to the Psalms, to the poets, and they just have a really great way of lamenting what mm. needs to be lamenting, lamented, but also noticing as the reality that life is good and it is beautiful and it is worth noticing. And Mary Oliver has a poem where she tells herself, let the soft animal of my body love what it loves. And and I don't think that's an instruction for frivolity or hedomonia where we're just pursuing, you know, the Hollywood idea of pleasure. But there is a part of our telos or what we are made for, what we were what makes us thrive that our bodies intuitively know. And it can be really helpful to sort of return to those things that are basic, like breathing and like water, and that those often have spiritual elements as well. And I love that about so many major religions have embodied practices that have to do with walking and drinking water and breathing in a specific way, because we know that we are embodied and that there's something about being human and that God could possibly be embodied that God could be incarnate and live well, and that that's worth pursuing, not just alone, but with others who remind us of what we need and also who are just there and who are present with us in our wholeness. And that's probably something that in my own theologically conservative Protestant background was not something we did real well we were such quote unquote people of the book <laughs> that we didn't really do as many embodied practices because we were so allergic or concerned with going through the motions that we wanted to know was this true in our hearts and in our minds? We don't just want to be bowing and kneeling. Right. mindlessly or hypocritically but the problem is everything you said around the fact that we are physical people and i appreciate the work of certain theologians like nt wright because they have been you know an anglican who has been very influential in my circles in helping us to see the goodness of creation the goodness of the physical body the goodness of these things inherently rather than only to be looked at suspiciously, not to be looked at naively. I mean, as you said, right. you know, there is a shadow side of all that, but at the same time, what God made is good. And we should first and foremost give him glory for that and seek. And Willard talked about this, you know, in the spirit of the disciplines of your body kind of being a power pack, you know, where you're going to use that power that you actually have been given in your body for God or for yourself. And yeah. so I've had a long way to go in some of these things, but I definitely have seen the value of a more holistic, integrated, you know, mind, body, spirit, devotion to God that I think is not less biblical, but more biblical for this theologically conservative Protestant. Yeah, I I don't love God in spite of my body, but I love God with my body. Right. I think that's maybe a good transition of 
what it means to be integrated. It's not that we are, I think there's a (laughs) phrase that I am not a fan of is like in the world, but not of it. We're made of dirt. (laughs) We are animated by God's love and we're animated by this divine gaze, um, which in the Quaker tradition, which I am slowly coming into, we believe that each person has the light of Christ. And that is something that that is just about humans. And that is something that we should look for in each person is that light that if God were to stop, I'm trying to think of who said it, but it's if God were to stop loving you at any point, you would cease to exist. And then we're all suspended by this love that that invites us to be as we are. And that invites us to to a greater calling, which is to love our neighbor, which is so simple and also the most complex invitation that Jesus could have given. Because I'm sure in your work, we find out that our neighbors are also incredibly complex and that, that takes which, you know, all of us. That's a great observation. In, in a way, some of the trainings we've done in Intersect like trainings on supporting people with mental health struggles in your congregation. Sometimes I think, you know, we've said a lot about mental health, but much of this has been the nitty gritty of loving your neighbor. How do you set boundaries with your neighbor? How do you develop relationships with your neighbor? How do you connect your neighbor to other resources outside of yourself? How do you ask hard questions of a neighbor? How do you patiently sit with your neighbor? You know, a lot of this... It's all neighborly love. (laughs) Love of neighbor. So when when Jesus says, you know, love of God and and love of neighbor, you might take him to be simplistic, but actually he's calling you to the most profound, multifaceted endeavor you could ever, you know, seek to live out. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that there's the most wonderful tension that's held there of the universal Christ. And and Richard Rohr draws us out well, where he talks about the universal Christ and also the very particular Christ who is um, present in every context and who we were talking about earlier about entering humbly into different organizations, into different spheres and learning to speak well and to love them well exactly in their context with the universal love that we are endowed with and that we believe is our calling towards the wholeness that is the kingdom of God that is breaking through. And the community that we envision is not this utopian community where there is no religion and everyone just kind of is vaguely similar and very happy. But I think it's more like the beloved community that Martin Luther King talks about, which is incredibly diverse. And we have to prepare for what that might be like and prepare for our resurrected bodies to look a little bit diverse. Exactly. (laughs) Like Jesus, Jesus arose from the grave with scars. And we have to be ready to love people in that. And what better time to practice that than in our faith communities and in our world and our context as we are right now. And I think that's one of the reasons to go back to 
the whole question of pastors and what it means to do some of this work. I've talked to several pastors, even if they're not bivocational, not every pastor needs to be bivocational and take the path that I've taken. God has given each of us different opportunities and spaces and places of influence. But when I've talked to pastors who stepped outside of their church and sought out opportunities to be with others in their community, it's made them better pastors. Like I know of one pastor who just coaches hockey games or he referees hockey games, that is. And he says he has some of the best spiritual conversations with some of the people for whom he is the only pastor they know. They played hockey that night and are having a broken marriage that they have no Mm -hmm. one else to talk to. And there's that pastor in the locker room afterwards. And so it's going to look different depending on the time, the margin, the season of life. But I think engaging with people who think differently than you, who in an increasingly, in a society where increasingly people have walked away from the church and who don't know any pastors, going out into those places and being a pastor there, uh, it is both an opportunity for you to share the good news and it's an opportunity for you to become a better pastor as you come back into your church community with those new insights around the struggles people had and the Mm. things you need to speak into as a pastor. Yeah. And Jesus modeled that so well. We can really take that from him as far as entering into the mire of, of his world and then having that, I'm going to call it subversive wisdom that comes and re-enters into the synagogue and throws some tables because they know the people who need to come in and they're ready to see the boundaries that are there because they know what it it is like outside. And then they walk in, not just, I, I took a sabbatical from church my freshman year of college and was just really struggling with feeling like I belonged in a church space. And when I re-entered, there was this sense of I bring all of those things that was that made it difficult for me to enter a church before. And now I see the margins differently as, oh, that's I identify with that person that's struggling to connect in my congregation. I now have this very personal identification with those who come in on a Sunday and really don't feel like they belong. And I think a lot of pastors already feel that, but are scared to admit that sometimes that maybe they don't belong in their own spaces and having other spaces outside of the church that will provide some of that belonging and also kind of expand what belonging could look like in their space could be really helpful. You definitely get a better sense of what are people facing. And if if you're, to go back to the fear issue we've discussed, if you're fearful of, well, I know what it looks like to live out my faith in this church space, as hard as that is in many ways, what does it look like for me to live in, in the society as it is now where I'm a pastor, and that's not always looked at in in some quarters. 
with the same sort of prestige as it may have been looked at in past generations. But if you feel that tension, that's probably the very tension that people in your church are feeling in their own jobs. And so for you to feel a bit of that, again, will give you a wisdom with which to better walk with people in your church and better speak to them because you'll recognize what are some of the challenges of living as a follower of Jesus in the world that are distinctive from the challenges that come living as a follower of Jesus as a pastor. And each are challenging in their own ways, but learning about that can be valuable. And, and I think that's one of the invitations we make to pastors when we talk in Intersect about faith and mental health. Some people want to be involved simply because they know there's people in their church struggling with mental health. But even if there aren't, for a pastor, for leaders, for others to leave their congregations to go to where those people are in the mental health system can be a great incarnational practice for them. And it would be great if they came back into their churches. But even if they don't, as you say, Jesus modeled not just come to me, though he did say, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, but he also went to them. My final question for you is, where can people find out about your work? And where could they maybe find out some places to to start their own kind of more integrative work? So one place uh, they can go to learn more about Intersect and the work we're doing is accessservices.org backslash intersect. Uh, if you just Google Access Services Intersect, and we have information there, newsletter that you can sign up for through the site where each month we have insights and resources at the intersection of faith and mental health that you can learn from. And so that's one place they can go. If they would like to start thinking more about this integrated work, then there's a couple of things I would point people towards. One is the Partnership Center, which is part of the U.S. government, the Office of Faith-Based and Neighborhood Partnerships. The Partnership Center has existed for uh, many years. It used to be the Office of Faith-Based Initiatives, but they are all about trying to encourage the building of these relationships between providers and faith communities and ensure faith communities have a voice and are part of responding to the social needs that exist in our nation. So that's one place I would point them to. Also, there is uh, a work called Innovating Forward that is part of Columbia University's Mind, Body, Spirit Institute. And that's a place where there are at different times, opportunities to look for grant funding and work at this intersection of faith and mental health, where people of faith are trying creative approaches. Uh, it could be retreats. It could be conferences. Uh, Intersect is one of the initiatives that partnered with them. That's another space I would look at if you're a pastor, person of faith, and you're wanting to explore what could I do in that space. And finally, I'll, I'll just say that one of the thing, projects we've been working on at Intersect is 
a better to we call it a better together curriculum where we are helping communities based on some of the work we've done with the homeless community. We're helping communities come together around particular issues. So how does local government, the faith community, and social service providers come together to tackle pressing issues in their community? We've seen that be really valuable for all parties, including for Christians and for pastors who've been able to to, to give it a Christian framing, give glory to God within spaces that they're typically not able to do so by showing the, what the church can do at its best, responding to pressing mm. needs in the community. Thank you so much for your time. And I appreciate Thank you. It. Yeah, I appreciate all of your wisdom and just commitment to the work that you are doing. It's incredibly compelling and it is I think really helpful to healing a lot of communities going forward and it's exciting so thank you thank you so much it's been really valuable to hear more about the work of blueprint and to get to know you guys more so thanks for having me on today yeah absolutely all right have a great afternoon you too